Psalm 17 is one of those psalms where it's a very poignant description of sometimes the anguish uh, that a godly believer faces. And maybe we aren't literally chased by men who want to take our lives, but surely, surely God's people know something of the anguish of hostility in this life for those who seek to live after God's ways and go after his commands to feel that oppression and hostility from the world. And so psalms like Psalm 17 give expression to what we are enduring from time to time. And these are good words for us to ponder and meditate and pray and sing together. So it's good that we do so. Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read and study verses 1 through 20 this evening as we continue to make our way through this marvelous epistle of the Apostle Paul. As you're turning there, first we will read God's word and then we'll pray and ask for his help and his blessing as we study it together tonight. So Ephesians chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 1 down through verse 20. This is God's holy word. Take heed how we hear it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you join me? Let's pray, friends. Oh, Lord, help us. God, the Holy Spirit, once again, we pray that you would give us understanding and that you would give us understanding minds and hearing ears and seeing eyes as we pour over this, your holy word tonight. May this precious word, like seed that is scattered, would it fall on good soil? May it not fall on deaf ears, but 
fertile soil, receptive, eager hearts. Grant us illumination, we pray, that we may understand and that we may treasure all that we read tonight. For Jesus' sake we do ask it. Amen. Well, we continue our study through this wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul, thinking together about life as God's people. This is one of the great needs of our day, as we've been arguing all along, for the church to think clearly about the church, the body of Christ. And we're in that ethics section of Paul's letter at the moment, that classic twofold outline. That's how the Apostle loves to structure his letters, doctrine and then ethics. Indicative, what, what God has done, and then imperative, what we must then do in light of what God has done. Or gospel, and then our response to the gospel, however you like to label that. So in Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, that's the doctrine section, the gospel section. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, then, are the ethics section. As we've been, we've been borrowing, we've been riffing off of Francis Schaeffer's famous statement, this is his how shall we then live section. And indeed, this is the, as we're thinking about it, how shall we then live together section, as we're thinking corporately as a church, as a congregation, the body of Christ. In chapter 5, many commentators will note, and you may have picked up on this yourself as we were reading through it, one of Paul's preferred metaphors to describe the Christian life is walking. Walking. And in fact, that that metaphor is not unique to chapter 5. Paul loves to scatter that imagery and that metaphor all throughout the letter to the Ephesians. You think back to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says that we once walked in trespasses and sins. But then by chapter 2, verse 11... By grace, we learn that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so as Paul shifts to his how shall we then live section, chapter 4, verse 1, you remember? You can look back there if you like. We were there a few weeks ago. He exhorted us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Or down in chapter 4, verse 17. We are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You'll remember there, back in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. So in light of all that we've just expounded, he's saying to the Ephesians, and all that I've just expounded in those first three chapters about God, about the gospel, about your union with the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus by faith, about the power and the glory of Christ revealed, in light of all that we've been thinking about, therefore, live thusly, he sets out in chapter 4 and following. And Paul uses that word additional times uh, to continue linking this line of thought that he has. Look what God has done for you in Christ. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 32, Therefore, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And that's how we wound up last week as we were, as we were transitioning out of and concluding chapter 4. And then one sentence later, here we are in chapter 5, Therefore, once again. And so here in the first half of chapter 5, you'll see that the passage is structured around that metaphor of walk. The, the manner or the conduct of our lives as those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and are united to Christ by faith. So if you notice there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, we are to walk in love. He says it right there at the front end of verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
And then in verses 3 down all the way through 14, there's this longer, generally negative section dealing with sin and its consequences. But if you look at verse 8, you'll see the positive use that Paul makes of all of that. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And then the third section in verse 15 uh, down through 20, and really into 21 as well, Paul calls us to walk wisely. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So three points, structured, uh, uh, taken, the verbiage taken right out of the, the passage we have in front of us tonight. Walk in love, walk as children of the light, and then walk wisely. Three points by which we will study our text this evening. So first, let's look at verses 1 and 2. To walk in love. Notice the familial language that he uses here. Therefore, be imitators of God, verse 1, as beloved children. The older I get, I more and more find myself sounding like my parents. Maybe you do too. I need to be careful what I say here because I know mom and dad watch the live stream of our evening services from time to time. So I have to be careful what, what stories I share. But even driving down the highway recently, I saw, I was driving on my way to Presbytery, I saw someone cut somebody off and almost cause an accident. I was maybe 100 yards back or so observing, but then I, I start muttering to myself as I'm seeing it occur, oh, real cute, real cute for you to do that. And without even thinking, and I'm uttering it in the exact same inflection that my mother did whenever she saw someone do something, a boneheaded move like that in traffic. And of course, parents, you see your children doing this around you which at times can be endearing until they start mimicking your worst qualities and tendencies, and then it's absolutely horrifying. Our boys will often say things or do things, and they're not trying to be funny, and, uh, but Sarah and I will look at each other and say, that's your child when he does that. No, 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 that's your child. He gets that from your side. Family resemblance. Family resemblance and family traits are very much a thing. And Paul is saying here that Christians are children of God. And because of that, they ought to bear the family resemblance. Be imitators of God. Be imitators. Resemble. Look like. Sound like. Behave like your father. What does that mean? Well, in part, it means to have a character like his. And his character and God's character is described in verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering. And sacrifice to God. What does love look like? Well, it looks like the life and the death of Jesus for his people. That's how we imitate him. This one who was obedient to God even unto death on the cross, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. What does love look like? It looks like the one who came and in love shed his blood for us, bearing our sin in his body on the tree, crucified. In our place condemned he stood, and because he was, we have become adopted children of God and his family. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And Paul is saying that the love of Christ, that costly, bloody, self-giving, sacrificial love, that is the template, that is the paradigm, that, that is the great framework of our understanding for how we must love and how we must live and how we must walk. Not love, quote-unquote, as our imaginations vainly design, nor as our culture 
will bizarrely define it or pathetically define it, but rather a love like this. It's, it's one of the most ineffable mysteries of our faith, brothers and sisters. Several commentators have pointed this out, and it's worth meditating on, even for just a moment. That God, that God as, he's, as he's treading out the winepress of his wrath against sin, sin that's now fully encapsulated and, and fully heaped upon his Son, and as God the Father hates that sin with a, with a holy and pure hatred, your sin and mine, as it's heaped upon his Son. And he exercises that wrath and he exercises that judgment on his Son. Jesus Christ standing where we should have stood, bearing damnation that we should have borne. And, and, and in that moment, strangely, wondrously, in anger, with a holy hatred towards sin, Yet the father was never more pleased with his son than there. As Jesus obeys his father, and he offers himself up, bearing shame and scoffing rude, bearing the sins of his people, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, as Paul uses there in verse 2 in that language. The apostle Paul says that, that is what it means to walk in love. You want to know what walking in love looks like? It looks like the Lord Jesus offering himself on your behalf, brothers and sisters. Love is love. That's one of the great mantras of our age, isn't it? You've heard it. Mere infatuation and, and a, a pull of attraction to someone else. These indefinably vague, sentimental, sappy feelings. Isn't that love? Isn't that love? A vapid sentimentality. Well, no, at least not according to the Apostle Paul, one of the Lord Jesus' royal and appointed emissaries. According to Paul, to walk in love is to walk in the way of the cross. I'll never forget when I was disabused of the cultural concept of love, not necessarily the, the more heinous iterations of it the way we see these days, but just thinking of love as a feeling, thinking of love as a, as, as a warm, fuzzy sort of infatuation uh, sensation, right? That's, that's the general... That's the general way culture tends to conceive of love. I'll, I'll never forget when I was disabused of that cultural concept of love, and I started to better understand the biblical notion of it. We were in Mississippi. We were at First Presbyterian in Jackson, and I was talking, I was speaking with Mrs. Barbara Porter about an upcoming children's lesson that I'd be giving. And she said, your lesson brings this out. And we would do little children's devotionals based on the children's catechism. And she said, your lesson brings this out, and this is what we try to stress in all of our catechism classes. I tell the kids all this all the time. Love is an action word, not just a feeling. Love is an action word. Wonderful Mrs. Porter. Retired elementary school teachers are excellent at conveying these concepts, especially to young minds, the way they can grasp such a profound thing in such a simple way. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14? We'll be there not too long in Pastor Wilborn's sermon series. John 14, what does Jesus say? If ye love me, keep my commandments. Love, biblically, is to echo the prayer of our Savior. Father, not my will, but thine be done. One man puts it like this. Christian love, biblical love, is to go the way of Golgotha. And to join your Redeemer in giving yourself for the glory of God and for the good of others. In loving self-denial and sacrifice. 
A saccharine sentimentality is not the way of love. Costly sacrifice for the glory of God is the way of love. Close quote. So walk in love. Walk in love. That's the first thing. That's the first thing we see here of how we should then live as his redeemed people, what our walking should look like. Walk in love. Secondly, we are to walk in light. We are to walk as children of the light. This is from verses 3 all the way through 14. Look first at verses 3 and 4 with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. But, there's the conjunction. Christians are called to walk in one direction, imitating God. But the world walks in a different course of direction. Ways that are entirely out of accord for believers. And and some ways that are so dark and so sinister and so vile that they should not even be named among us. And yet Paul gives this warning, he gives this exhortation here, because Paul knows reality. He knows the enticing and the deceptive nature of sin. He knows how sin is. He knows how crafty sin is and how it so often gets its hooks into the hearts of even God's saints. The word Paul uses there for sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia. It's where the English word pornography comes from. And so together with the word impurity, sexual immorality plus impurity that Paul uses there, commentators note that these words encompass all kinds of sexual sin that's outside the bounds of God's holy law. Now, it's it's no secret to anyone, assuming your eyes are open and you've not been living under a rock for the past decade or so, it's no secret to anyone with their eyes open that this is an area where our culture has been reveling in debauchery, with growing perversity, deviancy from what is a good gift of God, a beautiful expression of love and intimacy within the marriage of a man and a woman. No question about that. But notice, do notice, as obvious as that is about what we're going through as a culture and what we're going through as a society and what the church has to be aware of, but notice that it's not just sexual sins that Paul highlights. He also addresses covetousness. Covetousness is desiring something that isn't yours, right? Another word for that might be greed. Wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Paul goes so far as to say that covetousness, greed, is a kind of idolatry. See verse 5? Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Right, so Paul warns against sexual sin. Paul also warns against the idolizing of material possessions making an idol out of mammon or money. Once again, ancient vices. Ancient vices, ancient problems, ancient predicaments. As Paul writes this letter some 2,000 years ago, but Paul could not be more relevant to the sins plaguing our society and plaguing our generation, could he? So harmful, so toxic are these sins that Paul says they are not even to be named among us. One commentator puts it like this. What Paul has in mind is the kind of gossip-mongering that delights in the spread of the salacious details about other people's sins, all the while studiously avoiding facing up to our own. Close quote. You you heard about so-and-so. She got caught having an affair. Yeah? But what about your sin? Oh, well, we're not talking about that, are we? 
Paul says this kind of behavior is entirely out of accord for saints. Saints, as you may know, simply means holy ones. It comes to us from the Greek hagios, meaning holy, brought into the Latin sanctus, from which we get words like sanctify. That's what a Christian is, a holy one, one of God's set-apart ones, distinct from the world, belonging to him, his own treasured possession. And if that's who we are, if, that's, if, if that is our identity as his holy ones, as his treasured ones, as his beloved ones, then it follows naturally and logically in verse 4 that filthiness and crude joking and foolish talk are entirely out of place for God's holy ones. Instead, Paul says, thanksgiving should be the default characteristic of a believer. As, As we've been saying throughout the letter of Ephesians, that's always the pattern of the Christian life, right? Mortification and vivification. Put sin to death. Put death to sin and instead come to life to the things of Christ. Put off that and instead put on now this. Don't have foolish, crude, coarse, joking and talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That should be what you're known for. That should be named among you. Now, most of you, I suspect, will find it rather easy to avoid saying foul expletives and vulgarities. You'll find it rather easy to avoid conversations with lascivious subject matter at its heart. Well, that's not too hard. I'm doing pretty well, and I hope that you are. But notice, notice he also mentions covetousness. Ah, here's where we're starting to get closer to home. Now, how many of us are guilty here? Grumbling, complaining, perpetual dissatisfaction. I wish I had his job. If only I had her family, a wife who understands me like he has, her looks, his friends. Must be nice to have his house, his occupation, that income level. If only, if only, if only. Remember elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, remember what Paul says there? Do all things without grumbling and complaining that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Is that what we're known for, brothers and sisters? Is that the default setting of our heart and of our attitude? I hope, I hope truly, I hope truly that that's what people say about us. Oh, those Christians, those Christians over there at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, they are holy. They love Jesus and they love each other. And you know what? Darn it, if those aren't some of the most grateful people I've ever known in my life. Gratitude, thanksgiving is a fruit of the Spirit and it's the mark of a believer. Thankfulness should be our default characteristic. Why does this matter so much? Look again in verses 5, to five 6, and 7. For you may be, may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. We cannot be casual here, brothers and sisters. 
Paul, Paul, the apostle, is seeking to grab us by the shoulders and, and shake us to our senses to be vigilant to these things. If we're hoping that we can just dress up a comfortable, accommodated worldliness with a nice veneer of Christianity, it will destroy us. Like trying to hide the stench, spraying a little spritz of cologne on a massive pile of horse manure, it will do nothing. Be warned. Putting on a nice coat and tie, singing along to the hymns and the psalms, paying attention piously to the sermon on Sunday, all the while delighting in salacious, perverse talk, lying and desiring scrolling through images on the dark corners of the internet the rest of the week, secret meetings and text messages that you hope your mom or your spouse or your pastor never, ever, ever find out about. Paul says a life like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know, but if this is uncomfortably close to home for some of you, if there's a pinch of guilt or there's even red alarms going off in your mind, There's still hope. The end result need not be tragic. Because God in his mercy is warning you now, even here tonight from his holy word. Look at verse 8. At one time, you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. Friend, you don't need to be held in the death grip of secret sin. If that's true of you, if you feel like you're still held in the clenches of unconfessed, unrepented secret, habitual sin, you need not be held in its death grip because Jesus Christ, the light of the world, can make you light in the Lord. What was true of you last night need not be true of you any longer or ever again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, you know it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friend, by the grace of God, you can step out of darkness. Jesus Christ can make you clean. He can give you pardon and cleansing and rescue full and free and forever. Run to Jesus. Cast yourself upon his mercy and be washed and be forgiven and clean forevermore. Is God calling you to repentance tonight? And for those who do repent... And those who do turn to Christ and those who do love Christ, Paul says to you in verse 8, walk as children of light. If we're not going to live in the darkness anymore, but instead we're going to live as children of light, to walk in the light, that's a common phrase that we invoke in the church. What does it mean? Put on. Put off. Again, there it is. Don't walk in darkness. Put that off. Instead, walk in the light. Put that on. How? This way, verses 9 and 10. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So before you speak, before you jump in on that conversation, 
before you click that website, before you stream that Netflix show, ask yourself, is this good? Is this right? Is this true? If I say this, if I watch this, will I please my Father in heaven? I'm preaching to myself every bit as much and more as I am to all of you tonight. And then in verses 11 through 14, how do, we, how do we deal with secret sin? Take no part, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. Bring sin into the light where it cannot flourish. It thrives in the shadows of secrecy. Bring it to light. Bring it to light. Expose it so that sin might be slain. We've seen it all too often in recent years, especially in pastoral ministry. This has happened to some people that I know personally, and so it hits way too close to home for my level of comfort. Unaddressed, hidden sins sequestered away in dark corners. Men found out in public scandal as their illicit lovers and liaisons expose them and website databases have been leaked and lists of names have been exposed. Too many men, as I said, some I know personally, have endured very public falls and some of it has ended in absolute tragedy. Be sure your sins will find you out. Numbers 32, verse 23. But look again, verse 14. If we have those hidden sins, if we have those secret indulgences, Paul says, bring your sin into the light and do it now. Do it today of your own volition before your sins are forcibly brought out like a, like a, a crowbar brought out into God's providence or, or worse yet, when they're brought to light at the great judgment. One commentator puts it like this. There is a great expose coming when all of it will be brought into the light. And if you have sought to flee from the glaring light of the holy gaze of God here, hiding away in the darkness, when you face the light of God, of his holiness hereafter, everlasting darkness will consume you. You can try to hide from his holy gaze here, hiding in the darkness, but when you face the holiness and the light of God, everlasting darkness will utterly consume you. And so Paul's warning is, bring your sin into the light now. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. Close quote. Scholars think that there in verse 14, Paul is either partially quoting or embellishing Isaiah chapter 60 or possibly Isaiah chapter 29. Uh, Possibly he's quoting an early Christian hymn, uh, perhaps one that was sung when a new convert was baptized. Which, if that's the case, that would tie in very nicely with the original purpose of Ephesians, uh, likely a handbook, Christianity 101, given to new converts at baptism. But in any event, wherever the original source of that quotation is that Paul's using in verse 14, in any event, Paul quotes this hymnic lyric, and the point seems to be this. Turn from darkness and come to Christ now. Right now. Right now. Before the day is over. Friends, come confess your sin, flee to Christ, and instead of the darkness of sin and the darkness of death, there you will find in him light and life and mercy forevermore. So, walk in love, walk as children of the light, then thirdly and very briefly, walk wisely. Walk wisely. Verses 15 to 17, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Wisdom is so urgent, Paul says. The days are evil. Time is short. Instead of foolishness, understand God's will. How we do that is what Paul gets at in verses 18, really down through the end of the section in verses 20 and 21. Again, you'll see that that put-off, put-on pattern. First the negative, then the positive. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Put that off. But be filled, put this on, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Drunkenness here is just one example, perhaps an obvious example, given the culture that the Ephesians were surrounded with in pagan Asia Minor. He mentions sexual immorality, and he he hints at debauchery in earlier verses, now drunkenness. Examples of this kind of sinful foolishness rampant in this world. This This is the course in which the world is walking, and Paul says, flee that. Instead, in order to walk wisely, you must be filled with the Spirit. And the way the, the Greek grammar is constructed here, Paul is really saying, go on or keep on being filled constantly with the Spirit. All of our Christian life is to be a constant experience of the Spirit inhabiting and empowering our lives. Again, you think, great, how do we do that? Well, he says, Paul says that it takes place when God's people minister God's word to one another. Addressing one another, he says, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Now, very often, and maybe this is just me with, with Pentecostalism in my background, when we hear that language of be filled with the Spirit, we think of very dramatic, mystical experiences, these, this sensational euphoria of being filled with the Spirit in some inexplicable manner. Paul says, no. You will be filled with the Spirit when you do this. When you speak Bible to one another. When you address one another with God's word and God's truth. When you sing God's word and God's truth to one another. And you hear your brothers and sisters singing these things back to you. you, There it is again. When you are always giving thanks to God with one another. This is a long section of very pointed, very heavy exhortation regarding vigilance against sin and Paul's bearing down hard and here at the end after drilling and drilling and drilling and heavy, heavy and heavy, Paul comes up and says, be filled with the Spirit. And the way to be filled with the Spirit is to do exactly what you are doing right now, brothers and sisters. Be together with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. You're hearing the Lord's word. You're you're speaking the Lord's word to one another. You're opening these ancient books and we're pouring ourselves over them and we're singing the Lord's songs to his praise in, in one another's hearing. Not the fireworks or the pyrotechnics, but the very ordinary, the very normal routine of public worship. Here, the Lord has promised to steal and strengthen your soul against worldliness. And going through these very ordinary rhythms, the Lord has promised to steal your soul against the monstrous onslaught of temptation in this evil age. And here, together, we will learn to walk in love. We will learn to imitate God. We will learn to imitate Christ, our elder brother, and to walk wisely, bringing honor and glory to our great Father. And together, we will learn to redeem the time because the days are evil. Let's be together. And may God make these things true among us. Shall we pray? Father, we do bless you for your word. 
and even in your happy and kind providence as we were reminded of these truths around the Lord's table this morning. We are reminded of them yet again to this evening to sing and speak and tell the word of God in one another's hearing and to be full of the Spirit, intoxicated with the grace of God. Oh Lord, would you do this among us and seal these words to our hearts tonight. May we treasure them up and would you do it for your everlasting glory and our everlasting good. In Jesus' name, amen.